This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. We're continuing our study in the book of Hebrews, and I've entitled today's material, a word that's prominent in the section of Scripture we're going to be looking at in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and that is the word rest, R-E-S-T. It is an important concept in the book of Hebrews, and we are encouraged here in these verses, in one of his parenthetical warnings, about the need that we have in our lives day by day to adopt a position of rest and cessation from activity in a certain area of our lives. And the admonition here is that we should go on to what biblical interpreters call spiritual maturity, that we're not always like little kids and we come to a place where our belief system is not static, but at least fixed and solid in the fact that we're okay with God through faith in Christ. Therefore, we can move on through whatever life throws at us because God will see us through. The past is forgiven. The future is absolutely certain in heaven and in the future that God has planned for us. Therefore, we can be confident in him to enable us to work our way through the difficulties of the present. And when we do that, we attain a certain kind of peace or rest in our lives that he says we need to. It is something that God wants us to have. And if we don't exercise our faith and reach that point in our lives, we miss something and there are consequences for it. It will often result in some tremendous moral failures and have catastrophic results in our lives and the lives of others that we touch. So it's not a trivial matter that he's dealing with here. It's pretty doggone important. So let's look at it and see what he has to say in these verses. Therefore, let us fear. We need to be apprehensive about something. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. The word there that he's using for rest, he uses eight times, and it's unique to the author of this book. And it's the word katapausin, which means to cease from an activity. It's rest in the sense of ceasing. And so we need to have a healthy apprehension about ourselves. If we don't pursue this growth in our spiritual lives, not growing spiritually is the single most devastating thing we can do. And because it doesn't have obvious outward manifestations like other things in our physical lives. Sometimes we don't consider it to be important, but it's the most important thing that we are put here to do between birth and death. Verse 2, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So again, he reminds them of a previous discussion that they have had about the fact that in the past, for example, like the people in the book of Numbers who rebelled against God at Kadesh Barnea and didn't have enough belief in God to trust him that he would give them the ability to conquer the people in the land of Canaan and to go on and enjoy rest from their wilderness travels and to 
enter into their inheritance that he had prepared for them and what he had promised to their ancestors spiritually, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their own forefathers, they didn't get to see that because they didn't believe God. They didn't press forward in faith and appropriate what God had for them at that particular point in history. And the people he's writing to faced a similar crisis, just as we face that crisis in our own personal lives. Verse 3, For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, he reminds them that they have believed, so they have been saved by faith in Christ. Therefore, they need to proceed every day and appropriate a particular blessing that God has for us as we work our way toward, or as we believe our way toward, spiritual maturity, which gives us a peace in our hearts, which is a supreme and incalculable benefit. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. So in the book of Genesis, it talked about the Sabbath rest on the seventh day when God had finished his six days of creation. On the seventh day, he ceased from doing that particular work. And he set aside the seventh day in the Mosaic law as a day to take off and do nothing but rest on that day to remind us of the need that we have to sometimes not do something, to rest in the completed work of God and to rest in the completed work of six days of labor. And in the modern times, we have had intensive studies of the fact that people do better with periods of rest than they do with ceaseless activities. One of the great works of the past labor movement was to move it from a 16-hour a day work day to an eight hour day and to, ha to have days off. And in the Old Testament, you not only had the Sabbath rest every week, but you also had a number of holidays. Somebody sat down and figured it all up. Total added up to a total of three months when you considered all of the feasts and all of the celebrations that they were to do to commemorate the work of God in making them a unique nation among the nations of men. In this case, these are believers in the Messiahship of Jesus who are being tempted to sort of disidentify with that, to apostatize from that, and go back into Pharisaic Judaism in the period just before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he's warning them not to do that because that's not being spiritually mature, that's being spiritually immature, and it's an act of unfaith rather than an act of faith. And it will not be a peaceful thing in their lives that will be catastrophic. And just like the people at Kadesh Barnea ended up losing their lives in the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, these people could lose their lives when the judgment of God falls on the nation for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, which came in 70 AD. All right, then we pick it up in verse 6. Therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Now, just like the 12 spies had come back and reported the good things of the land to the people of Israel, but then 10 of the spies just didn't believe that God could give them the power to conquer the Canaanites, and the nation rebelled against God. God later forgave that, but there was still a consequence to them for not believing him at that particular moment, and he didn't allow them to enter into the land of Canaan. But even Joshua reminded them that they didn't get the job done. When they finished the book of Joshua, he pointed out all the things that they 
had trusted God to do and what that God had done for them. But then there were areas that they hadn't conquered and there were people that they had not displaced. And that later on becomes a snare for them and gives them difficulty in their lives in the centuries that followed. So there is a need to move on in your daily walk with Christ into a place of spiritual maturity. And it provides for us a rest in our souls. So he talks about that was iterated in Moses' day. It was iterated in Joshua's day. It was iterated in David's day. In verse 7, he fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David after so long a time, as has been said before today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The subject that we dealt with last week. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there's always an existential need that every generation has to appropriate a belief in the promises of God on a daily basis that they can reach a place of spiritual maturity, which he uses a term here for rest. In verse 9, he picks up on the theme of the Sabbath rest again. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The literal word in Greek is sabbatismos. For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his. So when we reach a point of spiritual maturity in our lives, when we're no longer dealing with some of the basic elements of the Christian life, and we're very confident in the fact that the finished work of Christ is all that I need for full forgiveness of my sins in the past, that my future is guaranteed in heaven, I believe that, I am convinced that that's true, then I can trust God in my daily activities and challenges to have a peace in my heart and a rest in my spirit on a day-by-day basis that brings tremendous benefit and blessing to my life and to others around me. Therefore, because all of that's true, verse 11, let's be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In the past, when the children of Israel didn't believe God and they fell away from God and they went into the systems of the pagans around them and they did what they did and believed what they believed, then they had the same consequences. The judgment of God fell on them. When they trusted God, God gave them victory and even protected them. Like, for example, the people that got carried away into exile were the blessed ones in that God took them out of the land before he destroyed it. And God watched over them in captivity and later made it possible for them to return to the land. He protected people like Daniel and Ezekiel in exile and kept the Jewish nation intact. He has kept the Jewish nation as a race intact even after the fall of Jerusalem, even though many of them don't believe in Jesus as Messiah and don't experience the spiritual salvation that could be theirs. Nevertheless, the Jewish people continue to survive century after century after century. And we can tell that we're toward the end of this particular era in which we live in that the nation is back in the land. It became a nation in 1948, but that's the subject of a different study. But the point he's making here is that for each of us on a daily basis, there is something we need to appropriate by being convinced that it's true, that God keeps his promises. And we reach a level of spiritual maturity where we're no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And so in verse 11, he says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Let's enter that place in our lives where we cease from struggling about certain things, we count on God's faithfulness to us, 
and we can go on and appropriate the resources we need to deal with the issues that we have on a day-by-day basis. And then he gives us a tool for getting that done. In verses 12 through 13, he brings out something that is available to us that will give us the information we need to do what he's talking about, to appropriate faith and deal with the issues of our life. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about the revelation of God in the Word of God. Now, the supreme Word of God, of course, is Jesus himself, his life. And that life is recorded for us in the eyewitness accounts given to us in the Gospels and in the epistles of the New Testament. It is also prophesied in the Old Testament. So we have a very real witness of God predicting the life of the Messiah. We have the Gospel accounts giving us testimony that those predictions came literally true. Therefore, all that God has promised that Jesus will give us in the future will indeed happen. And all that God has promised that God will give us through Jesus Christ on a day-by-day basis will also happen. And then he talks about the very nature of the Bible itself. He describes it, first of all, as living. It is alive. It can make spiritually dead people come alive. It can make spiritually dead sinners alive and to become living saints or people set aside for God's purposes. The Word of God is living in that sense. And it's active. It's very powerful. The word there, active, translated active, is the Greek word energes, with which we get our English word energy. It means a literal inworking, a transformative inworking into our lives. As we read Scripture, if we are convinced that it's true, if we believe it, it releases God's Spirit into our hearts and lives, and it changes us, and it energizes us. Not only that, it is piercing, it penetrates, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing, it's penetrating, as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. The Bible alone can differentiate between the immaterial part of man that's called soul and the other part that's called spirit. These are two facets of the immaterial part of us, and only the Bible can decipher that and help us to understand the two facets of us and how they both play in our lives. So it is quick to discern and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart of man. The word, therefore, that is translated judge is the word kritikos, from which we get our word critic. It also judges our thoughts, which is what we're thinking, but it also judges our intentions, why we're thinking it. So it answers the what, the answers to, okay, what are you thinking, and why are you thinking that way? The Bible can give us an assessment of that and help us to correct both our thinking and the motivation behind our thinking. And there is nothing, there is no creature hidden from his sight, that is from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When it comes to that time when we all stand before God, like believers stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, and lost people will stand before him at the great white throne judgment, 
men of all ages will be judged out of the revealed scriptures, period. So if you want to know where you stand with God, go to the Bible and it will tell you where you stand with God on any given day. Now, you need the full revelation of God. You need to know what the Old Testament uh, teaches us about God, but you also especially need to know what the New Testament teaches us about God and how we can be made right with God through faith in Christ. So the Bible is the complete revelation of God. It's all that we need to know. And it is the means by which God judges us in our lives at the very end of it. So what the encouragement in these verses is that we need to move on on a daily basis and trust God day by day, believe God's promises day by day, appropriate his grace for our living day by day in order that we will have spiritual maturity, that we will have a kind of rest in our hearts without which we will never be at peace. We will always be agitated and tossed to and fro with the various different ideas that are around. The interesting thing to me is as though the Bible and spiritual things have been excluded from much of the public life. For example, it is illegal to pray in the public schools in a formal way. It is illegal to pray at football games or uh, deemed to be so. The Bible cannot be taught in a public institution in many cases as what it is, the Word of God. It can't be taught in a faith-based way can they only be taught as a historical artifact or something of that nature. Yet, it's interesting to me that in the most powerful place of political life in our states and in our nation is in our national and various state legislatures. And each of those legislatures, to my knowledge, I may be wrong, there may be a state or two where this doesn't happen, but those legislatures open daily when they are in session, with prayer. Now, I'm not here to discuss the theology of the prayers, and the theology of the persons even entering into it, but the very fact that men and women gather together who have been given the awesome power of crafting the laws under which we and they will all have to live, and backing those laws up by the full power of the various state entities, whether it's the national government or the state government. Serious business. They pause to talk to somebody that they can't see. They talk to the Creator, thus reflecting the Judeo-Christian heritage of this country. Why do we do that? We do that because we know good and well in our hearts that the problems that are the most serious in our lives are spiritual in nature. Law is all about ethics. It's all about right and wrong. Now, where are you going to find out what true right and true wrong are unless you have a revelation from that being you can't see that you talk to in prayer? In other words, the only place you can find it is in the scriptures. I'm assuming that most of the people that listen to these Bible studies are already believers in the divinity of Jesus and in his resurrection. Therefore, you would be considered Christians. And so you need to continue to trust him to guide you in your work, even in the legislature, because the work you're about is uninformed without the information you receive from the living word, which is Jesus himself in your heart, and the written word, which is the Holy Scriptures. May God richly bless you.